Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we interview people who have written interesting papers and try to learn a little bit more uh, about the background of them. Um, because of the current situation, I'm uh, working from home, as most of the world is, I think, at the moment. Uh, so uh, if there's any drop in uh, audio quality or production quality, um, I do apologize. We'll hope, hopefully get back to work uh, pretty soon. Um, but there certainly is no drop in quality of guest uh, this week. We're joined by Dr. Chris Ramonda uh, from Kansai University. Um, how are you doing, Chris? Fine. Thanks uh, for having me on, Chris. Uh, I just have to say that uh, I'm really enthusiastic about the idea of this podcast and great name for the podcast as well. Well, uh, you can thank Jonathan for that. He's, he was the genius. That. <laughs> I take none of the credit. Um, so the paper we're going to be talking about is the role of encyclopedic world knowledge in semantic transparency intuitions of idioms. But before we start that, um, just can we have a little background uh, from you? Uh, I know you're working at Kansai University now, but uh, where have you worked in the past? Okay, so uh, in 2010, uh, was uh, when I first came to Japan and where I met you at Ritsumeikan uh, Taiheyo uh, Daigaku. And I was there for a couple of years. Uh, and after that, I had a two-year period in Osaka at Kansei Gakuin University, uh, where I worked at the Sanda campus uh, in the School of Policy Studies. Uh, following that, I got my first tenured position at Tokyo University of Science, I moved there for three years, and then I finally came back to Osaka because I, I love Osaka that much, <laughs> uh, to Kansai University, where I'm currently working in the uh, Faculty of Foreign uh, Language Studies. Okay. Um, and you told me that although this paper was published in 2017, uh, mm -hmm. you were writing it back in 2014. Is that correct? <laughs> Well, as I'm sure you know, as a fellow academic, Chris, I'm sure you know that these processes can can take time. <laughs> they certainly can. Uh, yes. Um, so this was kind of a byproduct of my PhD thesis, that which I completed at University of Birmingham. Um, it wasn't my main study. It was one of the studies to support the main study. And after, and so I, I began that well back in the early Let's see, 2012, 2013, around that time. Uh, but this paper was written shortly after I finished the PhD. And I submitted it, I think, to three different journals. The first two, it was rejected at, and the third, it made it in. But uh, even after it made it in, there was a period of about two years before it actually got into the issue, the official issue. So uh, it could have been cited as early back as 2017, but now the correct date is 2019. So it was a long journey for that one. Yeah, the papers really can take uh, a long time. I remember looking at uh, certain uh, papers from things from my PhD and just having mm -hmm. the note that it could take up to two years even to have it reviewed. So um, it does... Uh, it does take time. So, uh, as I said, the, the paper that we're looking at uh, is called the, the Role of Encyclopedic World Knowledge in Semantic Transparency Intuitions of Idioms. Um, and could you uh, tell us uh, what uh, piqued your interest uh, in 
this particular area of language? Well, I suppose um, as early back as 2010, when I was finishing my master's, I was in this course called the Mental Lexicon. And I like that course because of its cognitive focus on how we can use what we know about the brain to improve methodology, make things such as vocabulary learning more efficient. And I ran across some uh, research that claimed that abstract words were more difficult to learn than concrete words. So I wondered if through the use of imagery, you could kind of anchor the meaning uh, uh, better such, so that the learners can um, more easily learn uh, the target vocabulary in the second language. Mm. Uh, so what I did was I set up an experiment with two other co-authors um, to see if the use of pictures, which reflect metaphor when presented alongside the target abstract words could help learners to remember those words more easily. And this was just one, we did find that an effect for that, of course it is just one study. Um, but that, uh, I guess, piqued my initial interest in the use of, of metaphor for language learning. And uh, I've always been interested in idioms, metaphorical idioms. Uh, they kind of give the color and spice to language in a number of ways, especially when they're used creatively. They're creatively unpacked, not used in their canonical form, but when they're used in very creative ways. I, I've always thought that idioms were an interesting thing to examine. So for my PhD, I kind of uh, I guess the, the outgrowth of the research on abstract words kind of naturally led me to this path of uh, pursuing some investigations on, on idioms in a second language. Mm. So uh, at that stage, when I set up my, uh, <clears throat> when I was uh, undergoing the process of figuring out what I wanted to uh, investigate for the PhD, I wanted to use pictures uh, in a way that would have the same effect as the metaphorical pictures did for the abstract words. And throughout that process, that's how I was led down this rabbit hole of semantic transparency and all these other variables that can impact how easy or difficult uh, figurative language can be for L2 learners to acquire. I see. Um, so the, the actual study was uh, you had um, 30 idioms and 15 raters. Is that correct? That's right. That's and correct. how did you select which idioms were going to be in the study? So this is uh, this is one of those things where, as it was a byproduct of my main PhD study, the selection criteria was more closely tied to the main study of, of the PhD, which was to uh, find idioms that were highly imageable. And by imageable, imageable, I mean for which you can come up with a conceivable scene or scenario that would help learners uh, associate the figurative meaning with with the picture. And so, so the, in, in that sense, I was looking for idioms that were metaphorical because there there are so many idioms that that aren't. Well, let me let me backtrack a second. Just defining what an idiom is is so confusing because it's kind of an umbrella term. And there are some phrases like by and large that are considered, I mean, that phrase by and large that are considered idioms, right? Uh, and there's subcategories of idioms. Um, and I guess the number one criteria was it needed to be 
a metaphorical idiom. There had to be clearly identifiable constituent parts of the phrase that could be viewed as being metaphorical, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, thanks for that. It's it's useful to work out well to know what the, your uh, the definition you're working to uh, when you're choosing um, to put these studies together. Um, <clears throat> so, what what were the, what were your main findings? Because it's it, there was there were two sides to this. One was uh, the you know the participant uh, idea mm -hmm. um, and their ratings, and then more of a corpus based uh, study on the on the back end. Yes, that was intended to kind of help triangulate some of the findings from the, the first study. Uh, in the first study, I wanted to look at the concept of encyclopedic knowledge for accounting for how the ways in which learners might interpret some idioms. Um, Chris, are you familiar with the, with the term conceptual metaphor theory by chance? Uh, I'm not, no. Okay, so actually, I would like to recommend to to listeners. This is a, a quite an interesting uh, and, and, and groundbreaking area of, meta of metaphor studies. I think anyone who does metaphor studies should look into um, conceptual metaphor theory. Uh, conceptual metaphor theory, I, I guess the the I will call it the tome, <laughs> the sacred tome that first brought light to uh, a lot of the concepts underlying conceptual metaphor theory was. Uh, produced by Johnson and Lakoff. I, I think the publication here was 1982. I might be off. And it's in a book called Metaphors We Live By. And the, the, th bas the basic thesis of the book is that metaphor is, in some ways, and we're not talking about discourse metaphors here. We're talking about uh, metaphors that exist at the, the level of thought rather than language. And the basic concept was there's a lot of things about the ways in which we experience the world which help us to, which which in some way, make metaphor universal in a sense. So for example, some of the more common conceptual metaphors that have been identified is uh, anger is heat. And when I say anger is heat, what I mean is that is like, you can identify instantiations of that across different cultures. So for example, just in English, you can think of things like he blew up, he erupted, he got hot under the collar, mm -hmm. that made his blood boil. And, and the, the idea is that when we feel anger, we feel maybe a slight rise in the temperatures of our body mm. because of because of that, and 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 because of that, the universality of that, you can kind of see the instantiations of anger as heat in in kind of idioms and metaphors across different languages. Um, and there's there's a, so many interesting ones, like um, uh, for example, that you might not even really recognize because they they're so prevalent in our in our daily conversations. We don't even realize we're using them. For example, another one is. Um, progress is forward motion. So mm -hmm. let's get the ball rolling. For mm -hmm. every two steps forward, he takes one step back. You know, I just hit a brick wall, you know, so it's, it's, it's quite interesting. And, and one that, that you and I might be able to identify with, uh, one of the more colorful ones is intoxication is getting destroyed. <laughs> <So> <laughs> you could be like he got wrecked, smashed, and so on. So you, you kind of see how, 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 how the, the idea of conceptual metaphor theory is that there are certain things about the way in which we perceive our environment and the world, you know, spatially, um, you know, the, the idea of embodiment, that the way that, 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 that we, we experience our bodies in relation to the space around us can, can impact the way that these metaphors develop across cultures. But um, in, in my case, uh, for this study, I was more interested in 
pragmatic knowledge, like um, our just kind of common world knowledge that we have about the world to explain some of these, because I thought that while conceptual metaphor theory is highly interesting, I also felt it was kind of overly emphasized in the literature. So, and there wasn't really much to do on, on the idea of uh, pragmatic knowledge for explaining how a lot of metaphors can be understood. And it's actually quite, quite simple, you know, um, in the, in the article I used the, I think I used the example of give somebody the green light, you know, um, that one could interpret that as being, well, everyone knows about the rules and regulations for, for basic traffic, you know, uh, red means stop, green means mm -hmm. go. Green is kind of signaling permission, signaling permission in a sort of way uh, to do something. So I, I was kind of exploring the relationship between semantic transparency of idioms and to what degree that connected to uh, pragmatic knowledge as a way for understanding how those are used. It's interesting that you that you bring up the Lakoff and Johnson book because when we were putting together uh, a textbook for our um, reception classes for the reading and, and listening classes uh, here at Kyushu University. Um, the chapter on language came from that the book that the, you're referencing. Mm -hmm. And it was difficult trying to come up with activities to do in the class. Um, as you say, things that had a universality um, mm -hmm. and things that were very cultural location specific. So um, it's, yeah, it's, it's coming back to me now. <laughs> <laughs> um, how difficult was it to explain to the raters um, how they were supposed to calibrate um, their use of the Likert scale? Okay, yes. So this actually brings us to an important... Like, I'm not sure about the uh, the details of the of, of the target audience that you have for your for podcast, but I think maybe this is this might be a good platform to kind of give advice. From pitfalls that I've made in the past, Ooh, go and ahead. one thing that I've one thing that I've learned is, um, you know, you always want to have a pilot study to kind of weed out potential problems. In this case, I was lucky because I had a I had a fantastic PhD uh, advisor who made sure that <laughs> <laughs> that I had piloted all my scales before I had used them uh, for the main study. Um, so yeah, I did find that there were cases where the raters were interpreting the, and during the pilot study phase, I, I used uh, three or four raters in the beginning just to, to test out the scales. And I did find that some of the raters were interpreting the scales slightly differently, which is why I had to um, tweak the scale a little bit just to make it clear uh, to all the raters. And I also uh, gave them a document uh, before they started rating um, uh, to kind of explain you know to, to help to help reduce the chance or minimize the chance that they would be rating in different ways yeah i mean it's it's always the uh the issue when you're dealing with Likert scales and then uh with like you say human beings and, and the mm -hmm. interpretation um yeah so going on to the uh to the findings of, of study number one um what uh was there any were any of the um, ratings surprising to you? Were there ones that you thought should have been higher or lower? Well, one one thing I thought was quite interesting was my initial assumption was it would be almost a it, it would be a fairly straightforward correlation between the higher the the semantic transparency, mm -hmm. 
the more likely you would have a convergence explaining the like a convergence of interpretation mm. so so for example i think one of the highest rate rated idioms was like skating on thin ice or add fuel to the fire and and, and this is of course a, i think most of us can, can would agree that you know add fuel to the fire most people around the world know what fire is they mm. know what happens when you add fuel to it and they can make that association between uh adding to a problem as a fire grows larger. Mm. And, and indeed, you did see very, a very high level of convergence in the, the qualitative data as well. So for certain idioms, I had them explain how they interpreted that idiom and why they gave the, the rating that they did. Mm. Uh, now, the surprising thing was for even idioms where the semantic transparency wasn't extremely high, you still could see a high degree of convergence in there in their interpretations, which was I thought was quite interesting. For for example, the idiom "ruffle feathers." Hmm. Uh, I don't remember the exact rating, but I remember it was in the I think the mid transparency group, like kind of like mid level, not extremely low, not not extremely high. But of the four raters that justified their rating for that particular idiom, all four of them made references to a bird that's been disturbed, a bird who's had its feathers, you know, um, ruffled. It's easy to imagine. Uh, how that would relate. So, so all of them had very, very close, uh, closely related um, uh, interpretations. And I, even interesting. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I, I was just going to comment that uh, looking through the um, the, the scales. Um, mm. Did you? Did you? I, I wonder if if I'm reading it correctly. But um, idioms that included animals seem to be seem to be fairly semantically transparent. Apparently. Uh, or, or creatures, for example, drink like a fish, um, or the black sheep, and things like that. They are mm. more more so than the example than, for example, stand a chance or throw down the gauntlet. Right, right. Well, you, you know, it could be. It's interesting that you mentioned that. It, it, of course, it could just be due to chance because I said this this wasn't like a, a perfectly randomized sample of idioms, right. but because it was based on the study it was based on the main study of the PhD, which it had slightly different criteria mm -hmm. uh, uh, but it is interesting that you mentioned that because some of those others like animals might be might represent a kind of more universal mm. way of expressing certain types of figurative language than something specific like throw down the gauntlet which clearly refers to a, a particular point in history and culture and might be delimit uh, uh, it might be determined kind of by that uh, area or region in which it, it evolved and, and it might become what's what they often call like a dead metaphor you know the some of the lower transparency mm. idioms for example go cold turkey mm -hmm. you know yeah. um, that has a very interesting set of etymological explanations and it's not even agreed upon by lexicographers so <laughs> oh, exactly I mean <laughs> those it's, are I guess uh, unless there are a lot of turkeys that um, have heroin addictions I don't think that, <laughs> that there's a direct <laughs> semantic uh, transparency that connects to the animal itself. Um, right. I just, I just thought right. that was because in terms of universality, um, did you explain about differences in culture? I mean, I see that like throwing the towel is rated at almost a four, but that is highly culturally relevant because it's generally only in uh, it's only in combat sports. Is that is that correct? That that we yeah, would so use that. It, it is it is an interesting kind of I think you have to almost 
view it as a continuum of universal, like certain things, you know, you would expect most human beings who live in, you know, most part, most corners of the world would be familiar with, but there are things that are, that would be, you know, more, you know, limited. But what one example though was, was ice, ice skating. I was thinking, well, is it reasonable to expect that all the people around the world know what ice skating is? I mean, I suppose you could conceive of an area of the world where ice skating isn't a sport and mm. people don't watch, uh, you know, TV in which these kind of things are, are broadcasted. I suppose you can see exemptions to this rule of universality. So it, it's, it's I, I'm not sure if that's the best term to use to express it because you can always find some cases where there's going to be people who aren't familiar with with that domain. But uh, but I, I also think that due to globalization, that type of restriction is becoming less and less in I a sense i would agree i mean in a world where tampa bay can have an nhl um, franchise uh I think that <laughs> there won't be too many places in the world that that you wouldn't find uh uh you know ice and uh, and at least access to that metaphor right, right i mean one of the things uh, the way the reason this paper interested me because it was um it's linked to the work that I'm doing in in linguistic modeling and mm -hmm. trying to become cross-culturally and internationally uh, proficient at using the language for, for communication. And mm -hmm. the word that we usually use, myself and, and my research partner, Aaron, uh, use is negotiation, which comes up a lot in the, in the literature of English as a lingua franca. And so we talk about having to change the grammars you use, the intonations, you know, pronunciate, pronunciation. Um, I'm going to have to start including uh, metaphor as well and kind of reducing the amount of metaphor or at least monitoring use of metaphor so it isn't culturally specific and it's uh, semantically transparent. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so you mentioned um, uh, learning... a. a a second language, a foreign language. Um, how useful do you think that uh, teaching um, idioms uh, to, <laughs> and metaphors and things like that are useful in foreign language classes? Well, this is, is this is another great question, Chris. Um, I had a, another study from the. Uh, basically, I, I carved up my PhD into about four or five different studies, and one of them was teachers' perceptions of idioms for second language learners. And I was just, you know, astonished by the degree of disagreement between <laughs> teachers about this very question. <laughs> I, just, I was absolutely astonished. Um, I had um, some teachers tell me that they thought idioms were completely, completely useless for second language learners. Mm. And then I had other teachers tell me, oh, these are great instantiations of metaphor. You know, it's more than just learning the word. Um, Personally, I, 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 my, my particular view on it as a teacher, not so much as a researcher, but as a teacher, I think it, it kind of depends on what the learner intends to do. So a learner who is, for example, in our case, living in Japan, not an English major, no intention of going abroad, just wants to learn English uh, for a very narrow set of purposes, mm. probably they don't need to know many, if any, idioms, to be honest. Um, if you have a, another student who has aspirations to study abroad, uh, especially if they want to integrate into or assimilate into another culture, the great thing about idioms is just going beyond, you know, the joy of learning 
figurative language for the sake of figurative language, mm-hmm. being able to unpack and use language creatively in the target language is a good way to integrate into uh, a discourse community. Um, it's, there's this kind of a covert prestige associated mm. when when one person can communicate with another person in this kind of community and you have a kind of code language that isn't really understood by people outside the particular uh, discourse community. So, I mean, idioms, of course, uh, native speakers understand, you know, a wide variety of idioms, of course, but um, that kind of uh, a non-native speaker being able to correctly use, I should add that, because they are difficult to use correctly, correctly use idioms can have positive benefits for those who are trying to assimilate into cultures and, and, uh, and so on. So I, I think it really depends on the type of, uh, type of student. I mean, you're absolutely right that there's a difference um, in there can be wild differences uh, between teachers' attitudes towards this. Um, this mm-hmm. point actually came up uh, in a recent research presentation that I was doing um, uh, in Fukuoka, where one of the uh, we were talking about the ability of negotiation and trying to um, make language more comprehensible. And one of the attendees mm-hmm. brought up the uh, the job of um, uh, a translator, for example, at the UN, and mm-hmm. how much training they have to go through in things like um, metaphor and idiom mm-hmm. um, to make sure that they are uh, translating the the exact nuance of what the speaker is trying to say. I mean, of course, it would be better if people giving speeches um, where policy is made in the UN didn't use too many idioms or uh, or metaphors, um, but if they do. Um, in order to that it doesn't confuse other members of the uh, of the of the people uh, in the assembly, um, the people doing the translating have to be able not only to understand what the idiom means, but to translate it into something that conveys exactly the same message in the other language or in several other languages. Sometimes, so although that's a very very niche speech community, um, it just goes mm-hmm. to show how important. Um, understanding of these things could be uh, in a in a real life setting well Chris you know it's, it's another great thing about this point that you just made is even native speakers don't necessarily agree about the meaning of, of idioms because they have and this is an area I'm, I'm actually was interested in investigating um, I've kind of moved away from from idioms and metaphor a little bit just because oftentimes we're victims of the committees and classes that we have rather than the participants that we want, <laughs> you know? So, so oftentimes, so I'm, I've kind of moved, moved away from it because I don't really have suitable groups to, to be able to set up these kind of ex- experiments or things that are, although I guess this is something that could be examined with native speakers and it's even native speakers can disagree about the figurative meaning of, of certain in, uh, idioms. Um, I remember uh, also part of the PhD uh, study, I had to have picture raters for these pictures. And, and as part of that process, the three raters, I was only using three raters for this part, uh, the, the raters had to come to an agreement about uh, paraphrased responses by participants explaining the meaning of idioms. And they had to judge whether it was partially correct, fully correct, or incorrect. And um, it was so interesting. I remember one example in particular, Over the Hill. Mm. And one of the raiders, one of the raiders, you know, was much more flexible in his his interpretation of what this meant in terms like, oh, if you're over the hill, you could be over the hill for 
for pretty much anything. But then another raider thought, well, this is pretty much limited to sports. We often use over the hill, primarily in the domain of sports, to say someone who's not necessarily old, but but old for that particular sport, for example. Mm. Um, and I thought it was quite interesting how even native speakers don't necessarily have a one-to-one overlap in the way they interpret these different idioms. And there were a lot like that. That, that one in particular kind of stuck out to me. It's but, interesting. Uh, um, yeah, there were a lot of instances we had to rate like 300 differences. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that the person would go to sports for that. I mean, it's possible that that's the only place that they've heard it. Um, but mm-hmm. I don't think that it would be, uh, I, that wouldn't be my go-to, um, mm-hmm. exam. So yeah, that, that would be something that, that, uh, alters people's perceptions for sure. Um, right. so moving on to the kind of the, the second part of the study, uh, you looked, uh, into, you, you produced a, a corpora of, um, <laughs> well, you produced a corpus of of several texts um were these ones that you went out and found for yourself or were they recommended by your supervisor or some combination i i just i tried to cast the net as broadly as possible and find whatever idiom dictionaries that were out there mm-hmm. and any idiom dictionary that i could find i i collected and i used as part as part of that study mm-hmm. um and yeah basically for that i was just looking at the uh how frequently Idiom, uh, etymological notes were included for some of the idioms just to try to triangulate the findings from the first part of the study to the second to the second part of the study hmm. um, it, it was it was quite it's quite interesting just because uh, a, a lot of times for the lower transparency idioms you would notice that you know you would see a, a greater variety of, of explanations I think like I, I mentioned earlier uh, cold turkey I think there was three maybe at least three possible, explanations uh for for that one so, and which one do so, you yeah. which one do you uh do you think is the correct one or closest <laughs> to correct oh gosh it's anyone's guess <laughs> <laughs> uh i i thought the the one explaining the appearance of cold turkey skin relating to like a, an, a, drug, a drug addict skin when they're going mm-hmm. through withdrawals made the most sense to me intuitively but but then again, you know who who can really say without any hard evidence. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so after you completed this study, um, what uh, you know, what did you learn from it, either methodologically or from the findings that that you've applied to later work? Gosh, there's probably many things. Uh, let me see here. Um, well, I I learned that. Uh, that if that if you don't have a good reason not to, it's always better to to aim high with your uh, journal journal targeting. Mm-hmm. Um, this is so, this is somewhat related. Um, I, I always feel that there's a lot of good studies out there that people end up putting in, for example, uh, conference proceedings. There's nothing wrong with conference proceedings, but at the end of the day, if you want to maximize the people actually reading your paper. You know, um, it's good to try to start off at the, you know, don't be overly ambitious, but start at, at journals that you could conceivably get into. Mm-hmm. And, and and the reason that is there's no disadvantage other than loss of time. So if time is not that crucial, um, you know, and I realize a lot of listeners maybe, especially in Japan, they might need a certain number of publications to apply for certain positions. Mm-hmm. And I understand that. But 
But but if if that's not your case, and you can bide your time, then uh, it's only going to make the paper better, and you'll only learn more because even if your paper's rejected by a particular journal, you'll usually get feedback from reviewers on how to improve it. And of course, certain things can't be improved. I think one of my favorite quotes of all time is, "What is well, <laughs> you might know this one, Chris." Uh, what is bungled by design can't be fixed by analysis. <laughs> I love, oh, I love that funny. quote. So there's, there's certain things that you can't fix uh, retrospectively, but there are things that you can. And I think what I learned the most with these earlier publications, such as this one is starting off at the better journals, even if you don't get in those journals, uh, one, it will give you good advice on how to improve them from the reviewers. And sometimes, you know, the editors are very good uh, oftentimes at, targeting or uh, suggesting journals for you to submit to. So I, I think in this case, that, that is uh, what, what happened. One of the, one of the reviewers said, this may not be a, an appropriate venue for this particular journal, but I suggest you try this one here. That's and I think that's what happened. Yeah. That's really good advice. Um, I, the, not only for the, the, the placing of the paper where, where it might be better, but I, I agree. The feedback that you get from reviewers is, is often, more helpful than um, you get from your supervisor. Not that your supervisor doesn't give you good advice, but a fresh pair of eyes, particularly when it's double blind and they don't know you and you don't know who they are, they will oftentimes give you um, more direct uh, feedback <laughs> than someone that you have to meet face to face and you know have a working relationship with. And so it, and oftentimes uh, can be maybe not in your case, because you're a much better writer than I am, but it can be quite uh, forthright and difficult to hear, but it does make the paper better. You're far too generous with me, Chris. I've, I've seen, uh, I've seen, uh, you know, what you can do with the, the English language and it's quite, uh, quite impressive. Okay. I've always, I've always commented, I've always commented, like, I was like, Chris has an extremely fast process. I remember when I first met you, you could just weave together these really interesting sentences of English. So, well, yeah. you, you used to come um, to me for you used to come to me for legal advice. Um, I remember it. <laughs> <laughs> you, we, you were always good at coming up with these bizarre legal questions. Um, just just yeah. a, a bit of background to me. My 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 undergrad was uh, was law school, um, which okay. I I stopped doing when I was twenty one. But as soon as Chris found out about this, I would. Uh, drives home uh, back to the center of Beppu would be so. What about this? And, and what if someone did this but told someone something different? I'd be like, oh gosh. Um, so you you have a, a very inventive mind when it comes to the criminal world. <laughs> what does that say about me? <laughs> <laughs> Future master criminal. I think you're just one hollowed out volcano away from being uh, <laughs> being being a Bond villain. Um, so could you tell us a little something about what work you're doing now? Uh, is it related to idiom and metaphor, or is it, um, or have you moved on to something, to something else? Uh, so I've, I've basically moved on. I, I, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm currently, as, I'm, as you said at the early, at the outset of the interview, I'm currently at Kansai University, and I'm very happy at my job now. Um, I like it because I'm in a context where I have very supportive uh, environment, both professionally and um, and academically. Uh, everyone is uh, extremely helpful, and and I have the opportunity at my current uh, university and the faculty in which I work to teach English majors. And in this context, uh, all of our English majors do a full year study abroad during their second year of study. Um, and I think 
that a program that is tailored in that way attracts a, 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 the kind of student that I enjoy teaching, if you know what I mean. Um, students who you know, self-select to be a language major and choose a program based on study abroad uh, tend to be highly motivated in my experience. And uh, it's, it's a pleasure to teach the students in, in the faculty I'm currently at. Um, and also most of my current colleagues are other, if not applied linguists, then linguists. So that's also quite um, refreshing to work in that kind of environment where you can collaborate with colleagues and so on. But to answer your question about uh, my shifting research, basically, I'm in a case where a situation now where I teach a, a lot of different types of classes. And so it's really to have, it's really difficult to set up experimental type research uh, for me now because my my samples are totally different. You know, we we often have to deal with as I mentioned earlier, we have to deal with the the students that we have in terms of the intact classes every semester. And if those aren't very similar, it's quite difficult to set up uh, even quasi-experimental type study designs. Uh, but, you know, um, I have moved more to kind of study abroad. Uh, I'm still really new to the area, but um, this is kind of where I've shifted my, my interest uh, over the past year. Um, yeah, so it's kind of been evolving totally different <laughs> maybe evolving is not the right word it's totally different than what it was before i'm not hearing anything chris so i'm oh, not okay. sure if you so, cut off sorry yes i think i think my audio just cut off for a section there yeah i i was just saying that um i completely agree with you that uh, there's a difference in the motivation levels of people who've chosen to be in the classroom versus people who are placed in compulsory classes i sometimes have to mm -hmm. uh remind my colleagues when they say oh my, this this class isn't you know they're not really motivated they weren't interested in the things i was trying to get them to do and i have to say well um that's because you know they were told to be there and so mm -hmm. you know you you kind of have to get over uh, that motivational uh, hurdle, um, but with students who who've said that they they've signed up and they, um, I would say it's uh, you know they they saw the ride and border ticket anyway, so it's um, yeah. So uh, study abroad. Where where do your students go to? We have well, we have an ever growing number of partner universities uh, in North America, uh, so. In Australia, so we have, let's see, we have three or four partners in the United States. We have a Canadian partner, we have a, a partner in New Zealand, partner in Australia, and then we have what's called this cross ryugaku, which is where they can study both their second and third language at the same time. So we have a partner in Korea where they can study uh, Korean and English at the same time, in Taiwan where they can study Chinese and English at the same time. So there's about 15 partners now, I think. And each new cohort of students have about, I guess we have about 160 to 170 students. So I would say on the average, we send anywhere from five to 20, 30 students to a particular partner university, uh, one of these uh, 15 partner universities. Oh, wow. So it's, it's quite a, it's quite a well-populated program then. Uh, yes, it's highly, uh, structured and, um, there's a clear curriculum, uh, cl a clear curricula for each um, each partner university that we've established ties with. Mm. Do you have a 
do you get to travel with them? Uh, on occasion, I don't travel with them, but on occasion, I have to make a business trip. Uh, I, I, well, when when I was when I was on that committee, I had to make business trips to some of the partner universities to do some negotiations. I believe uh, you interviewed or um, your your colleague interviewed Simon Humphreys uh, a few days ago. He and I went on a trip to Queensland together for for that very purpose. Uh, for example, ah, that sounds good. Sounds nice. Okay, well, uh, the paper that we've been discussing is uh, the role of encyclopedic world knowledge in semantic transparency intuitions of idioms. Um, and the final question I'd like to ask you on uh, this and also uh, on your PhD, um, if there are any listeners who are considering um, taking a PhD or, uh, you know, doing further graduate work, um, what would be your advice um, for... Uh, keeping up their motivation if they find themselves flagging. I mean, this paper and the, the study clearly took a lot of time to set up and to uh, and to undertake, mm -hmm. and then to write up, and then many years to you know keep pushing the paper forward to try and get it um, try and get it published. So, what would be some advice that you can give to uh, um, people considering graduate study and academic work? Mm. Gosh, um, I imagine. The most important factor would be, and this is going to sound, you know, very, very intuitive and, and basic, but, you know, you need to research something you're actually interested in answering the question to, uh, answering the question uh, for. So if you, I guess, I guess you really need to ask yourself before you get started, what is the reason I'm doing the PhD? Mm -hmm. And of course, everybody needs to get the PhD in order to, to get a, a better position. Everybody is, 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 I think, has at least is at least partially motivated by the the carrot of uh, you know uh, um, moving up in your in one's career. Mm. But I think also because it's such a marathon, um, it's it's you're going to be completely burnt out uh, by the end of it if it's not something that you're actually interested in doing. Mm. Um, so just make sure that. Whatever your topic is for investigation, it's something that you're highly interested in. Um, that you can you can uh, that you can keep grinding out over over the years. Um, and even in my case, I you know, I, to be honest, by the fourth year, even I was getting a little bit tired of <laughs> research on idioms. You know, the first couple of years it was quite quite easy, but the last the last year it was. It was a bit of a slog trying to get through and just, you know, preparing the final version of the paper and and everything. I would say that uh, yeah, it just has to be something you're you're truly interested in, um, and also having a a strong network of support, uh, people you can ask questions to. In particular, I think going back, if I had to do it all over again, there's certain things, certain method methodological choices I made that that ended up causing me a huge headache mm. down the road. And if I had just had the knowledge beforehand, I could have, you know, avoided those, those pitfalls. So if, if, if you have, you know, any, any sort of network of support that you can go to check ahead of time, um, make sure that you, you, um, you try to kick around these ideas to have the best possible version before you actually put it into operation. Yeah, that's that's a really important point about having a support network who can look at things and and suggest. Uh, well, even if they're just suggesting alternatives, you might not uh, 
go down that go down that route, but uh, it will, you know, get your uh, head working as well. I mean, uh, I can't, I forget who said it, but um, uh, one of the quotes that I like is uh, that, that life is best understood in reverse, but we are doomed to live it going forwards. So, <laughs> yeah. And I, I take your point on motivation. I, I once explained it to my wife about why I was feeling down at that point, And I was just like, it's, it's really difficult to write to find the motivation to write a book that you can only guarantee three people are going to read. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. That is a good point. You know, so, and, 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 you know, from that too, I think the same thing applies to, to papers. You know, once you finish yeah. your PhD and you're expected to publish in peer reviewed uh, journals, one of the great things about aiming high in the beginning and then going down is I find it's much easier to write a paper when I know, people are going to actually read it. Exactly. Um, the, so when you say going high, um, where, what, which do you consider to be the, the gold standard uh, language journals that, uh, um, again, people who are thinking of going into uh, academia or taking on graduate work, um, uh, what journals do you, do you think they should start with to do their initial um, background checking? Uh, so it's, it's, it's really a difficult question because it kind of depends on the scope of the article. Right. Like if it's a highly specialized uh, article, you know, your best bet might be to start off in something like, let's like say, for example, you're doing something with, with reading, you know, mm -hmm. um, then you might start off with a, maybe a field journal rather than one of the disciplinary type journals. You know, um, if, if it's a, if it's a study that, that is carefully, thought out, carefully op operationalized. It has a, a, a decent number of participants, um, interesting findings, you know, then, then you could start off with some of the uh, top journals in our field, such as uh, applied linguistics, uh, studies in second language acquisition, um, uh, foreign, uh, foreign language teaching, uh, LTR, what is LTR? I forgot <laughs> language, language teaching research, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, uh, there's a TESOL quarterly is another good one. Mm. Now, if, if your, if your paper is very pedagogically focused, you don't have a lot of theory. There's a, there's good journals for that too. For example, ELT journal mm -hmm. is a, is a great journal for, for teachers. You know, they, they have a kind of a shorter, uh, word count. Uh, you have a maximum number of 15 references, but it's incredibly practical. So if, if you're one of those researchers who who thinks that a lot of research is just, a, you know, and I, I understand this this point too, like it's, there's too much focus on theory and less focus on practical application. Journals like ELTJ is a great, it's a great journal for putting out ideas for, for teaching and people actually read, read that journal. Um, <laughs> people actually read it <laughs> as opposed to all those other ones. Um, that, that's, that's really uh, that's really helpful to uh, have the names of some journals that people should uh, look in. And uh, I agree, it does depend on what you're trying to uh, publish. But um, just going to the guidelines that each of the uh, journals have, how you're supposed to be formatting, what, what kind of contents they're looking for, um, even that can give you some inspiration of how you're going to improve your paper to, uh, to get it published. Right, right. And, and, you know, some journals now, thankfully, are are letting you 
keep the format free for the initial submission. And then you only have to change it if you move on to like a uh, round two or, or whatever, which I think is quite nice because oftentimes you submit to one journal and it gets rejected at the editor phase, you know, two weeks <laughs> yeah. later, and then you have to invest hours of time just changing the formatting to the next journal. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, yes, it can be a long and often thankless task, but um, it's been very nice to uh, go through the, the process of, of this paper uh, with you. So um, once again, the paper we've been discussing uh, is uh, the role of encyclopedic world knowledge in semantic transparency intuitions of idioms um, by Chris Ramonda from uh, Kansai University. Um, if you have any questions um, uh, to give to us here at the podcast, uh, you can send us an email at lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page, uh, uh, which you can uh, join, like, and uh, leave a comment there as well. Um, if you're getting your uh, podcast through iTunes, you could uh, rate us uh, and leave a review there as well. That helps uh, us with our, um, to publicize. But the most important thing uh, in terms of more widely publicizing this podcast is if you like it, then recommend it to a colleague. And um, it's going to be a way that we can try and grow uh, our uh, group of um uh, academics here uh, online. So thanks again, uh, Chris, for giving us your time and good luck with uh, whatever you, you're doing uh, these days. I know, I mean, as I mentioned at the top, we're currently working from home. I'm assuming you are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it was a pleasure being here. Thanks for inviting me. Okay. Well, stay busy, stay well, and uh, I'll, uh, I'm sure I'll meet and speak with you again uh, soon in the future. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. Thank you. Goodbye. Yep, see you.